Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga, and I'm filling in for Beth Heaton, the regular host. Now on to today. For my second segments, Zaragoza Guerra, veteran college coach educational consultant and former member of the MIT and Caltech admission offices, um, will be sitting down with me to discuss STEAM, science, technology, engineering, art, and math. So yes, you heard correctly. It's STEAM, not STEM. So in other words, we're going to be discussing how art fits into STEM studies and how students might think about the STEAM approach. For my third segment, I'll be discussing the pros and cons of starting at a two-year community college before transferring into a four-year college with my college coach colleague, Emily Toffelmeyer, former high school counselor and University of Southern California admission officer. But first, Lori Peltier, I think I always say it wrong because I want to say the French pronunciation, Peltier, um, college coach, finance consultant, and former financial aid officer, uh, will be answering questions about how to best prepare your teen financially for college. Welcome, Lori. Hi, Sally. Happy to be here. (laughs) So how do you say your name again? I know you've told me before, but I should get it right. Yeah, we don't do the French way. We do the regular, the American way, I guess, Peltier. Just two syllables, Peltier. Peltier. Okay, Okay. all right. Thank you so much. All right, so let's go ahead and dive right in. I think this is a really important topic that actually parents don't often think about. Like they're thinking, understandably, they're super focused on how do I pay for tuition and room and board, which are enormous financial burdens, but they kind of forget about that their kid's going to be spending money as well. And, um, you know, how are they going to help them? So since the parent is paying for tuition fees and room and board, will the student need money while at school? Like, what are they going to need that money for? I think that's a great question. Um, and it depends on the student, and it depends on where they're going to school, obviously. There's, you know, different costs of living in different areas of the country, but there are a lot of little things that the student might need money for, such as food and drinks off campus or when the dining hall is closed. Uh, some colleges have more food options and more variety and more accessibility than others um, when you sign up for a meal plan. And you, some schools, the kids end up eating off campus a lot or uh, on the weekends. Many students also start off with a supply of Gatorade and water bottles and granola bars when they move into their dorm, but they often don't replenish it when that runs out because those are big purchases and they might not have a car to drive back from the store to carry it all. And there's also entertainment like movies, museums, and concerts. Most colleges offer um, certain entertainment items for free or at a discount, but there's still a minimal ticket charge. And if they're going to events that are not sponsored by the college, that could get quite expensive. Lastly, I think transportation is another one. If the student attends a party off campus or needs to go to the store for laundry detergent, shampoo, pens, notebooks, they might need a bus fare or an Uber or Lyft account to get off campus to do the shopping. And I have kids who are just graduating college now, so let's be honest, some college kids like to party and they may need cash to buy their beer or other things that they're going to party with. 
<laughs> yes, yes, they, uh, yes, they probably do. <laughs> All right. So, what can a parent do now over the summer to prepare their new college student? I think the most important thing is, is to sit down and have the discussion. You know, for the parents to be on the same page and to uh, let the student know what page they're on. So, to have the conversation of what will the parent pay for and what is the student's responsibility. Most students earn enough over the summer months to support them through the semester or even through the whole school year. So talk about a budget. How much can they spend each week or each month until that money that they've saved up over the summer runs out? Most semesters are about 15 weeks long. So um, if you plan it that way, that you need enough to, to get through 15 weeks before you come home for winter break. Also discuss whether the student will be required to work while they're at school, whether it's an on-campus or an off-campus job. There's a lot of downtime between classes, and students have much more free time in college than they had in high school. So there may be the opportunity to work a part-time job to keep supplementing that budget and those savings that they might have, Um, and it could keep the budget going even longer. And then also figure out, you know, have the discussion with the student of how will they access their money. You know, you don't want the student walking around campus with a big wad of cash or storing it in their, in their dorm room. Um, that's very dangerous and risky. Most college campuses have ATMs or even a full-service bank on campus. So find out what bank is on campus and if your student can deposit and withdraw from that ATM without any additional fees to your bank account. If you have to change banks, the summer is the time to do it to switch over to a bank account that will service you on campus without any additional fees, and, and also figure out um, how you might send the student money or transfer money into their account uh, if they needed it. So how are you going to access their account, or is it going to be a joint account? I have an example that just came up today. I can't believe it, just an hour ago. I was looking at my son's bank account. He's finishing up some classes at Northeastern University in Boston, um, his last classes, and Amazon took $130 out of his bank account, which pretty much wiped him out. (laughs) And so I immediately texted him, and it turns out he did not return one of the books he rented for spring semester by the deadline date it was supposed to be returned. But had I not been looking at his bank account, I never would have known this, and he probably would have overdraft and had overdraft fees. So my suggestion as a parent is to have the bank accounts linked so that you can see it and the student can see it, and the student knows that you're looking at their bank account. It makes it very easy to watch for those glitches, but also to transfer money in when it might be needed. And lastly on this topic, I would say that you also have to think about what additional methods of payment a student might need besides cash. They might not need a checking account, you know, and, and checks, but they might need a credit card or a Venmo account or an Apple Pay or even a PayPal account for certain purchases. Mm-hmm. I was thinking, too, I don't know if this is sort of appropriate for this topic, but, you know, about helping students realize that there are cheaper ways to do things. I remember when I went to college, I had grown up in a city that had a bus system, and so I took the bus everywhere, but friends of mine who'd grow up in the suburbs just thought taking the, they didn't realize that the bus system was really easy in Portland, Oregon, where I lived. And so I, you know, these days, um, I think a lot of students in that situation, they just take Uber everywhere without realizing that for a dollar fifty or two bucks, they can take the bus instead of 10 bucks for Uber. So it seems like finding out some of those things and setting up that expectation that you're not going to live high on the hog. Um, You know, take the Uber at midnight, but if you're going to the store at two in the afternoon, take the bus. (laughs) 
Right, and most cities, if the college is in the city, most um, city transportation systems either give a discount or a free pass for students with a student ID. So it mm-hmm. might even be free to take public transportation. Right, right, free or at least reduced, absolutely. So um, so what about a credit card for a child? I mean, I can see how that would be both a good thing and a bad thing. Can they get one at age 18? Uh, due to some changes in the credit laws a couple years ago, you can't get one till you're 21, but there's three different ways that an 18-year-old can, um, can get a credit card. One is to have a co-signer on the account probably a parent who would co-sign on the credit card so that if any bills went unpaid by the student, the parent would pick them up. Um, So that's one way to do it. Not all credit cards will offer that. You'd have to shop around and find the one that's best for you. The second way is to have a prepaid credit card where you put money on the card up front to ensure that the cash is there to cover the purchases. And these typically have very low limits so that the student can start to get used to using an account without any risk because the money that they put up front would cover it. And lastly, you might be able to have your child as an authorized user on the parent's credit card account. Uh, So you'd have to check with your credit card company to see if this is an option. And in some cases, the parent's credit score you know, hoping that it's a good credit score, will carry on to the child. Um, So if the parent is responsible for the credit card bill and has been paying it on time, has a good credit score, the student being an authorized user on that card uh, could pick up the credit score of the parent and would help them get a, a head start on building their credit card. Whichever way you choose to do it, I think it's important to discuss the dangers of the credit card, the, you know, the high interest rates that can be accumulating interest, uh, the fees for non-payment, and the limit that they have. And, and I think um, you know, explaining to the student what is a good purchase to put on a credit card. Mm-hmm. What would you call a good purchase versus a, a – I mean, is there such a thing as a bad purchase? Like, what are your <laughs> thoughts on that? So um, that – I think it goes for emergencies. You know, most people have a credit card just for emergencies. Um, you know, if you, if you want to rent a car, you have to have a credit card to rent a car. Um, oftentimes, to book a hotel room, you need to have a credit card. So there's some things you can only do with a credit card. Um, but I think there's emergencies. And you, as upsetting as it can be, you want to talk ahead of time over the summer before college starts about what emergencies might come up, such as, um, you know, you twist your ankle on the soccer field do you go to the emergency room via ambulance or do you limp to the clinic on campus, the health services on campus? You know, um, most students don't realize the charge to a health insurance company if you're taking an ambulance and going to the emergency room. So so if, you know, walk through certain scenarios of emergencies that might come up and hopefully not, but if they do, the student will have a set plan. Um, Another one would be, you know, the student's cramming for finals and it's midnight and they're starving and the dining hall is closed. Can they use the credit card to order pizza delivered? Not a great use of a credit card, you know, when you think about the interest that might be accruing if that's not paid on time. Um, Maybe there's other ways that they might be able to get food or plan ahead that they're going to have food when they need it. And, um, you know, a situation where maybe they went off campus for an event and they're in an unsafe neighborhood, can they use the credit card to take a taxi back to campus? Well, that, yes, that makes sense, you know, to get yourself out of a risky situation. So, you know, thinking of different things that can come up and uses for it, and, you know, it's up to the parent of what they think is a good use, but um, 
frivolous things, I guess, would, would consider not using a credit card for. Yeah, it's funny. I, I remember, uh, so this is dating me, but I watched a movie, a John Cusack movie called I Sure Thing, I think, back in the 80s. And uh, there's a scene where these two college kids are stuck by the side of the road and it's raining. They don't have any money. They're like hundreds of miles from their college because of various movie type uh-huh. shenanigans. And one of the girls says, oh, I have a credit card. And then she goes, oh, wait, but it's just for emergencies. And her friend says, excuse me. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm talking about, and I haven't seen the movie. Yeah, exactly. So, well, I can I can recommend it. It's a silly 80s flick, but uh, you might enjoy it anyway. <laughs> so, um, so any other unforeseen, I mean, other than a credit card, what else, are, is there anything else a family should do to prepare for unforeseen emergencies? Um, well, having a... Um what do I contact list, you know, who do, who do I contact in which emergency? And is it something that I call the parents at three in the morning or do I wait until 9am to call them and tell them? So, um, you know, just trying to walk through some scenarios that might happen and having those contact numbers in the student's phone in case of an emergency, um, would be important to, for, you know, before you send your child off. I think there's other things that the parents need to do to prepare their teen financially. Um, you know, be upfront about the cost of college. Um, you know, what is the student's responsibility and what's the parents? You know, parents probably paying tuition fees and room and board, but maybe the students are responsible for all their books, for the uh, maintenance on their laptop or buying a new laptop or the software for their laptop. Um, sometimes that can get quite expensive. Um, what about extra fines that the student might receive? A lot of students don't realize that if they park in the wrong spot on campus, they're going to get a parking ticket, and those can add up quickly. If they don't return books to the library, that could be a problem. Or if they lost their key to their room, a lot of schools will charge you a lost key charge uh, to get a new key. And all of those fines or fees that get added to the student's bill have to be paid before the student can register for the next semester. So don't have any of those surprises. Know that those, you know, uh, mistakes that the student might make throughout the semester may put added burden onto the parent for paying that bill before they can register for the next semester. And one other point is that the, the parents can see the bill, but only if the student gives them access, which, which sounds a little crazy, but because of FERPA regulations, uh, federal regulations about uh, privacy, the bill is only seen by the student unless the student signs off on a release form to give the parent access to the bill. Um, And that typically happens over the summer before school starts or at orientation. There'll be a form the student fills out that says, yes, I authorize these people to be able to see my records. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. All right. Well, I think I think that covers it. Thank you so much, Lori. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to take a short break, but when we get back, Zaragoza Guerra will be joining me to discuss STEAM education. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Our humanity is a thing we take for granted, but it takes many forms, and it requires much of us to fully express it. Listen to On Living, the trauma and beauty of being human with host Dr. Leanne Nguyen. This program will explore topics about survival, fulfillment, hope, connection, being fully alive to ourselves and to others. Guests are people whose life experience inspires us to reflect on these questions. Tune into On Living, broadcasting live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. As I mentioned before our break, Zaragoza Guerra is joining me to discuss STEAM education. Welcome, Zaragoza. Glad to be here, Sally. Well, thanks for joining me here today. And I just want to say this is a topic I know very little about, which is actually really fun for me. Often the stuff we talk about on the radio show I'm pretty familiar with, but STEAM is a concept I had heard of. Um, but barely. Mm-hmm. And I think all of our listeners are going to know what STEM is, um, but STEAM is something else. So um, so maybe kind of tell me, what, what is STEAM? STEAM is kind of a, you know, you're adding an A to the word STEM, and uh, the A stands for arts. And it is a concept where... You know, educators are trying to combine uh, the talents of artists and designers um, and bring them into the fold of STEM, because oftentimes there are going to be some components within STEM that are going to require some of the skill sets that an artist and designer uh, can bring to the table. And uh, that combination and that influence and that contribution uh, can oftentimes make uh, either a product or a research project or uh, science education in general, all that much more rich. And, you know, it was a concept that was you know, more, most recently started at, at RISD at the Rhode Island School of Design and, and is kind of spreading 
um, out. And, and it's more of a concept, an educational concept, you know, particularly on the uh, high school level, on the middle school level, to really try to combine these two different schools of thought. And, and oftentimes, you know, we kind of think, hey, you know, what are artists and what are scientists and people who are interested in that, what do they have in common? And I like to think of it this way. You know, when you think of artists and you think of scientists or people who are involved in STEM, they're both in very different ways describing the universe. And some do it a little bit more objectively. Others do it a little bit more subjectively. But scientists are describing and articulating the world to us. And they're letting us know this is how the world works. And, and this is the world. We're, we're, we're giving you a description of, of how the universe came to be. Artists do the same thing, but they do it a lot more subjectively. And, and they're telling you, this is, we're describing the universe. We're describing the human experience. We're describing what it is to live in this great universe. And when you combine the two, you can oftentimes come up with some concepts that are a little bit more interesting. And think of, uh, you, you know, if, if, you, if you think of a company like Apple, um, where you've got a lot of engineers, you've got a lot of scientists coming up with some really incredible ideas that uh, shape our world and shape the way uh, we interact with one another. Well, if you take out the design aspect of Apple, it might just be another technology company. But this is a company that kind of revolutionized the user experience. And they put a lot of thought in art and design and incorporated that into their products. And mm-hmm. as a consequence, they've made some pieces of the technology much more rich experience for the user. And I mm-hmm. think that's kind of what Steam tries to do is to figure out how to couple these two to make science a lot more interesting to people to conceptualize science in artistic terms and for artists to bring their vision of the world um, and infuse that into STEM. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually love the Apple example because um, I graduated from Reed. Steve Jobs went to Reed, uh, paid tuition for one semester, and then just hung out for an additional year. And uh, he actually really credits, um, you know, one of the biggest things he credits is his calligraphy class at Reed. Not a physics mm-hmm. class, not a math class, a calligraphy class. And that really informed, in, really importantly, his sense of aesthetic. So he, I think... You know, so he was thinking about this before there was even a name for it. Exactly. And, and this is something that, quite honestly, has, you know, deep roots in, in human history. It's not as if this is something that just came about in the last 10 years. I think if you were to think about the arts and STEM, they, were, they used to work a lot more closely in years past, if you look back at you know, such people as Leonardo da Vinci, you know, someone who was a brilliant scientist, a, a brilliant engineer, who was also an incredible artist. And I think 
his ability to work in both worlds uh, is what made him such a genius. Or if you think of, um, you know, someone like Brunelleschi or Michelangelo, who were not just artists, but created some feats of engineering. You know, before Brunelleschi, we had forgotten how to build domes. And, and that dome in Florence is still standing, and it's an incredible sight to behold. It's a feat of both engineering and human achievement, an artistic achievement, uh, if you think of the dome in St. Peter's, or if you think of some contemporary architects like uh, Calatrava. You know, he doesn't just build bridges. He builds bridges that make one marvel at the world and marvel at engineering. Or if you ever walked across a Brooklyn Bridge, it's not just a bridge. It's, it's, it's a human experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Without a doubt. I mean, just think of uh, yeah, monuments all over the world. Um, and I, I like what you say, too. My brother is actually an astrophysicist, and he compared himself to an artist once when we were talking because he said that what he does has no application maybe it will eventually but right now it has none it is actually as you said literally just a way of describing the world of understanding the world there there's you know everyone thinks of the stem as being you know having great utility and obviously much of stem really does but they're an important piece of it and this i think is kind of a link in for the artists among us if, even if you're not interested in utility, but you're just interested in knowledge and understanding the universe, so science is part of that, too. Um, and, and that really sort of brings us closer to your notion of, you know, how connected the arts and the sciences are. And, yeah, my, I mean, before I'd even brought up STEM education, that's something that my brother said to me in conversation. So it's pretty mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. yeah so, yeah, I, oh, go I, ahead. Exactly. They're both simply describing describing the world, one from a subjective viewpoint, another from a more objective uh, vantage point. Um, and I think uh, it, 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 that description, you know, e- even if you're looking at not, not just engineering, and let's talk about beautiful bridges and beautiful products that Apple produces, but even if we're looking at things from a scientific vantage point, um, you know, when you start fusing the two, uh, you can come up with ways of communicating science to the masses um, in ways that are more intuitive to uh, people who might not necessarily be so familiar with science. So, you know, oftentimes if I'm looking, listening to a science and I, I hear all of these incredible equations and I know some people who are in the know, know who, who look at an equation and they say, hey, yeah, that absolutely makes sense to me. It might be a bit of difference to other people who, who might not necessarily speak in that language. And I think, you know, you know, the thought in terms of STEAM is to perhaps bring in some artists who, who might be able to artistically represent what some of these ideas mean. And so, for instance, if, if you're looking at a place like RISD, um, which is, you know, works, you know, with, with Yale, uh, I'm sorry, with, with Brown University and, and with URI, you know, they, they try to collaborate on ways to, you know, visualize oceanic data, you know, to see the impact of climate change. Um, or, or they try to bring artists in um, to Brown to uh, study how to communicate medical risk so that patients can be a lot more informed, you know, with their decisions. So it's about bringing these two disparate disciplines together a little bit um, sooner 
so that some of these ideas can be conveyed in probably a more intuitive way because artists have that ability. They have that ability to see the world and articulate it and represent it visually. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is interesting how engineers or, you know, kind of the STEM sciences can help artists. I mean, when I was at Reed, um, you know, one of the requirements at Reed is a senior thesis project. And one of and there's a nuclear reactor at Reed. Um, it's mm-hmm. a very small one, but they have one as a research facility. And so an art history major partnered up with um with a physics major, I believe, but someone who worked at the reactor and they used the reactor to kind of work on dating and understanding some of the pieces of art that she was looking at. I don't even understand exactly what they did, but just the fact that there was this partnership between them, I thought was pretty Mm -hmm. amazing. Yeah. You know, I was talking to um, a student today who happens to be very involved in computer science, very interested in, in, in the STEM side. And one of his hobbies happens to be photography. And, um, you know, if you think of even something like photography, you know, something in, back in the day when it was, uh, you, you know, uh, just coming up, uh, about, you know, there was a chemical process to it. You, know, you had to combine all of these chemicals to get everything right to get this representation, this visual representation of reality um, into existence. And the moment you let that scientific aspect of getting it onto, uh, you know, an image onto a piece of paper and started pointing that lens um, to objects around there, that's when you leave science and, and, and start fusing it with art. But a lot of those artists, those early photographers, had to be pretty good scientists as well to get those images. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. as I'm talking to my uh, student who, who happens to uh, work in digital photography, it's not all that different. He's, he loves that digital image because it helps him figure out some um, concepts in, in, in physics, you know, uh, you know, in terms of light and, and, and getting those images just right. And not only that, reworking those images on a computer, you know, which is mm-hmm. one of his loves. So there are ways where, you know, science does impact art in many respects. You know, if you're looking at 3D printers or if you're looking at digital images, there are ways that art can also impact science in terms of helping scientists represent what it is that they've discovered, what they've seen. Mm -hmm. So are there, I mean, I know it's more of an approach than a curriculum, but are there schools, um, STEAM schools that we can recommend to students who are interested? I mean, we've already discussed RISD, which obviously has their Mm -hmm. amazing partnership with Brown, and you said URI as well, I believe. Are there any Mm -hmm. others? I'll I'll be honest with you. I looked around and didn't really find anything else. So, Yeah, I think this approach is mostly on the high school side and the middle school side. But I think as you have younger students who've been exposed to this and as they are starting to go to college, you're starting to see some impacts. So uh, there are some student-led groups, 
some student-initiated groups, and a number of universities um, at MIT, at RISD, at Harvard, at Brown, at Yale, at the New School, BU, and Rutgers. Um, there's, there's a whole um, uh, initiative and, and, and group um, just called STEAM, you know, uh, led by students um, at these variety of, uh, of universities. And as I said, it's, it's, it, it's a way for students to, you know, create this communication between disparate fields in academia, you know, whether that's not just art, but, but business and, and, and so forth, primarily art into STEM. Mm-hmm. But they're trying mm-hmm. to, they're, they're starting to think of, of, of making these connections. And so I think as you get more students involved and as you get more students at these universities thinking of these uh, concepts and, and trying to bring these disciplines together, I bet you're probably going to see this grow. Mm-hmm. I was also thinking that colleges um, where you can create your own major or combine majors, which let's face it is a lot of colleges at this point, um, mm-hmm. would probably really make STEAM very possible. I mean, I, I visited Brown and nobody explicitly mentioned STEAM, but my tour guide was double majoring in um, biology and film. So, the, mm-hmm. you know, there's, you know, and, and at, at Bard they do projects and I think her bro- project was incorporating both. So there are colleges that could make it very possible to work on these kinds of projects. Absolutely. And, and there are going to be ways where students might be able to either do double majors or majors and minors. And I think, you know, while there may not necessarily be any official majors in, let's say, STEAM, there are ways to combine the two. And there are ways that students can uh, go in with this kind of approach to really enrich their, their overall undergraduate experience and to really be exposed to these uh, disparate fields and, and get a better feel. And, and there are a number of ways. To, it's not just the visual arts. You know, I've had plenty of students who uh, might have, uh, you know, an interest in music. And, 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 you know, there's also, you know, acoustical engineering. There's, you know, ways where you can combine that love of science with music. Um, if you think it, it, instruments need to be made, they need to be <laughs> engineered. It's not something that, that just comes about. Uh, concert halls have to uh, be made and, and, and measured. Uh, there are ways to, to combine these, and not just the visual arts, but other arts as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, digital, uh, digital gaming. Um, I also have heard of, of sound architects. That's a pretty interesting <laughs> one. Um, yeah, there's just so Medical many Medical illustrators, out there. architects, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Quite a number of different fields. Mm-hmm. Okay, absolutely. Well, listen, thanks so much, Zaragoza. That was great. You're welcome. My pleasure, Sally. <laughs> All right, so we're going to take a short break, and then Emily Toffelmeyer and I will re- return to talk about the pros and cons of beginning your college education at a two-year school. But first, I just wanted to highlight one of the many ma- amazing colleges in the U.S. We have something called the School Spotlight. So I wanted to talk about the University of Richmond, which I had the pleasure of visiting a few months ago um, in the town of Richmond, Virginia. It has graduate schools in law and business. So technically it is a university, but because it's got relatively small size and a very intimate classroom experience with an average class size of 16, it really feels more like a small liberal arts and sciences college. 
All first-year students get the opportunity to experience hands-on, discussion-based classes in their first year, thanks to the first-year seminar requirement, which has courses such as civic journalism and social justice, science for future leaders, and also why does anything exist, (laughs) which I think is a pretty cool title. Uh, Freshmen curious about the intersection of math and science also have the chance to enroll in interdisciplinary courses known as SMART, which combines biology, chemistry, and calculus, and also IQ science, which includes all the sciences, um, the kind of biochem, physics, calculus, but also throws computer science in there as well. Um, and so this is, you know, you're learning all these in a research, research-based and collaborative environment. But if you want business, you're actually going to be in really good company at Richmond. Their three most popular majors are business administration, leadership studies, and accounting. And I did want to, part of the reason I wanted to highlight Richmond was because of their leadership studies, which often goes with business, but not necessarily. Also, if any of you are from Virginia, admitted Virginia students whose families earn less than 60000 per year will receive a full scholarship to the university, equivalent to full tuition room and board. So that is pretty exciting. So thank you and we'll be back in a few minutes. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Why? Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. 
Welcome back, everyone. As I mentioned before our break, Emily Tofelmeyer is joining me to discuss starting college at a two-year college, like at a community college. So welcome, Emily. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Sally. So what do you see as the advantage? Let's start out with the pros, the positives. What do you see as the advantages of starting at a two-year college? That's a good idea. Let's start off with the good stuff. Uh, I think the number one pro is probably the one everybody thinks about, money. You're obviously just going to save money if you spend a year or two at a community college, which is still really affordable in most states. Um, and especially if you're thinking you might want to transfer to a private university or an out-of-state public university, you're going to save yourself a lot of money by taking care of some of those general education and intro credits at the community college. So I think that's a big one. Um, I also think it's good for students who... A couple of different types of students, like a student who needs to hit the restart button. Maybe you just didn't have a great high school run. Priorities were a little off. Maybe you couldn't get your time management down. Maybe you were going through some things that were preventing you from really being a student full-time. So if you had a low GPA and weren't really able to get into any colleges that you were excited about, any four-year universities, um, then I think community college can be a great place for a fresh start. Um, yeah, and, and let me. Students who, oh, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I know you wanted to go through all of them, but I just really want to highlight that one. I think a lot of students know about that, but I mean, I was the transfer coordinator at Reed, and I worked with a student who ended up being a top admit who, by her own admission in high school when she first came to interview with me, had been like a C minus D student. I mean, she just was an atrocious high school student, barely graduated, um, but went back to college when she was 35 at a community college and got straight A's and, you know, was really one of my top admits as a transfer counselor at Reed. So it's, it was a, it was, she was very impressive. And uh, we actually gave her one of our very few merit scholarships. Yeah, at USC, we had students transfer in who had, had earned GEDs or who had had to drop out of high school or, you know, made it through high school's Ds just because there was a lot going on in their life that they that was impacting them and their ability to study and to even show up for school. So universities can be very forgiving if you show them, you know, okay, I wasn't so great in high school, but I proved myself in community college. There's a chance for redemption there with schools as elite as Reed and USC. Schools like that do accept transfer students eagerly. And- And even University of Chicago. I do want to say, though, that if you were not a strong high school student, you need two full years at the community college. I think that's important to note. Yeah, if you're you're applying in your first year, then what what do we have to look at in the admission office, right? Maybe one semester of college plus maybe a not-so-hot SAT or ACT score, depending on your profile, plus a low GPA at high school. Yeah, you need to spend a little more time in those classes to prove to the university that you have the study skills in place and that you've turned a new leaf. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I will mention that at some colleges, um, at a lot of colleges, actually, probably most, if you've spent two years at a community college, they, you don't need an SAT or ACT. Some still require it. Reed does. University of Chicago does. Just speaking of two I'm familiar with. But that is something that can also be an advantage if you're a strong student who just doesn't test well. That can be helpful, too. Yeah, and USC was in the group that did not require the SAT or ACT if you were applying as a second-year community college student or transferring from another four-year. So, again, for the students who aren't great testers, there's still a lot of great options out there. Um, And you might be a student who had a great high school run. You did well, but you are interested partly in saving money, but also you just don't know what you want to study yet. That's really common. 
Um, every student who doesn't know what they want to study, they think they're the only one who has no idea, but that's pretty much everybody. Um, so if you want to just spend a year experimenting and not spending your parents' money on that experimenting and that research, or not as much of it, then maybe starting off at a community college is a good way to go. And, and that might be a good solution for a student who's just not ready quite yet to leave the nest. So if there needs to be another year or two of maturation or getting over some obstacles that you encountered in high school, then this is a nice way to ease into the college life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've, I've met a number of, um, over time, I've met a number of college students who um, certainly were very smart but just weren't as organized and started to kind of become more organized, become more diligent, sort of just become more mature, maybe not until their senior year of high school. And so for a lot of them, I thought a community college was sort of a good bridge also. Like it wasn't just about what college they could get into, but it was also about, you know, kind of uh, maturing into those greater organizational skills that they were going to need for college. Absolutely. All right. So so what about you? Those are my pros. Do you have some pros you want to throw out there that I didn't cover? No, I think that's it for right now. Um, oh, one thing I will comment, though, is that there are some private two-year colleges, and those will probably, those are often cheaper in my experience than a two-year college, but they're not going to be as cheap, or, or sorry, than a four-year school, but they're not going to be as cheap as a community college. So if your goal is saving money, then definitely your go-to should probably be the community college. And you know, you just reminded me of another important point. So California comes to mind as a state where this happens, but I'm sure it's in a lot of other states where the community colleges and the universities, the public universities there, they partner up together to make it not easier for transfers to get in, but there's a really dedicated pathway. There's, you know, set aside number of seats usually for transfer students. Like they really want to keep transfer students in the pipeline. So if you were not a great high school student and you're a strong transfer student, your chances of getting into a school like a UCLA or a Berkeley will actually go up because the state is committed to this relationship between the universities and the community colleges. So that can work for your benefit as well to take advantage of those state programs that do exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. A number of highly selective state universities are can actually be a little easier to get into as a transfer in some way. I mean, this the expectation is still that you're going to go to community college and do very well. But, you know, whereas they might have needed AP and honors courses from a high school student, there's no such thing usually for at community colleges. And so students can go on there and do very, very well. And like you said, there's a direct pipeline. So I've heard of students, you know, who never would have gotten into UT Austin getting in as a transfer student, Penn State, that's a regular thing that you see. So definitely the case with a number of the um, four-year colleges. Um, and as you said, when it's a community college, it's it's a really relatively easy transfer process. Um, all right, so yeah, let's talk about the disadvantages. Okay, and on to the negatives. Um, Well, speaking of, of, you know, credits and and the transfer process being easy, you know, there is a chance that you might lose some credits if you don't make the right decisions about what courses to take. And and if you're going to community college for the sole purpose of saving money, then you want to be really careful that you are planning very well and don't try to do it on your own. Take advantage of the advising office. There's a transfer advising office at every community college. And you know what? They might be overstaffed and underbudgeted. That is a really normal thing that happens at public institutions. So you can't expect the service to always come to you. So when you're a freshman or when you're first enrolling in community college, you need to go to the advising office, sit down, say, here's my goal. I want to go to UC Berkeley. Tell me what I need to do. Um, And make sure you're taking classes that are actually going to transfer. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I would also say, too, that if you want... The, those advisors are typically going to be very well informed about transferring to a local public university, but they might not always know as much about transferring even to a local private school because um, that's not as much in their experience. Have you found that to be the case? 100%. When I worked at USC, that was definitely the case. I, I think there was, I would almost say there was a little bit of a bias against USC just for whatever reasons or, you know, personal history people might have had with USC. It seemed like a lot of the community college counselors, what I heard from transfer students was their advisors were very much directing them toward a certain type of institution, so whether a Cal State or a UC. And when a student would ask about an out-of-state institution or maybe a private school, there wasn't as much helpful information given. And so that's when the student really has to become the self-advocate and go outside of the advising office and dig up some information on their own. So most universities, they hold transfer information sessions. There's a transfer coordinator who you can talk to on the phone generally. And a lot of colleges make it really clear on the transfer admission part of their website. Here's exactly what you need to do and what you should be taking to transfer into this major or that major. So the info's out there. You just might need to do a little of the work yourself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I want to stress, too, that a lot of colleges are very available. I think some people, they, they think we're all like, when I was at University of Chicago, I did my best to get back to everybody to respond to all emails, but the numbers were so high that it was just very challenging to do. But when I worked at Whittier, and also when I worked at Reed, I worked very intensely uh, with my transfer students. You know, I had more of the time to do it, and there were multiple transfers. There were some transfers who would apply out of nowhere, but most of the transfers I had talked to at least once and there were many transfers that I had talked to maybe three or four times before um, their application even came in the door and then I would talk to them more once they got admitted so don't be shy about calling the college to kind of try and get help and figure out like of the classes you're taking and you know what what classes are going to transfer and by the way you can start this early I had some students who contacted me you know, like a year before they were even thinking about transferring to ask for advice on their course schedule. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I, I imagine USC was, you know, similarly open to having those discussions. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, it's a, it's a big office and it's a ton of applications. So at the bigger schools like that, there's not always a guarantee somebody's going to get back to you in a timely manner. But I can say personally uh, that I was really, I was always responding to transfer students and talk on the phone to them and was a part of the transfer scholarship process and transfer presentations. So there are dedicated people at every university who have a special role in transfer process. So feel free to figure out who they are and, and reach out to them. And like you said, don't be shy with asking your questions because you can't be shy as a college student anyway. So it's really good practice for when you enter into a bigger university, you're going to already be in the practice of being comfortable reaching out to staff members and faculty. Mm-hmm. All right. Any other disadvantages? I mean, obviously, yeah. so obviously you can overcome, you know, some, one of some of the challenges, but what are some of the others? Well, one that I've, we've talked about before, and this comes up a lot in conversations with families who are considering this, is there's a big concern from parents and from students that going to community college, it just isn't the real thing. And if everybody else at your school is heading off to a four-year university and you're going to your local community college, it just feels like a letdown. You're not going to have the fun, rah-rah experience. Um, and, and that is going to be true with some community colleges, right? Some are just strictly, every community college is commuter, but... Some have more of a student life than others. And so just in the L.A. area, I could 
there were certain ones that were more like going to a four-year college, and there were others that were more like going to like a night school or a continuing education school. So you can find colleges out there that are going to give you more of a sense of community. And no matter where you are, just like at a four-year university, it's up to you to choose to get involved. So just mm-hmm. like it is for entering freshmen, entering transfers, nobody knows that you're a transfer. You don't have a scarlet T on your jacket, so you just need to go out there and get involved too. And I reviewed plenty of transfer students at USC who had gone all out at their community college. They were in an honors program. They were doing scientific research. They were in clubs. They were doing community service. So it is possible, but, again, it's just a little extra work that you have to be willing to do. Mm-hmm. All right. So we only have about um, one minute left, but um, any other disadvantages? I mean, I know that a friend of mine was thinking about transferring and it was a a study abroad was an issue for her if she wanted to transfer because they wouldn't let her do a junior year abroad because they wanted two full years on on the campus itself. Right, the residency requirement. Yeah, and that's something you're going to run into if you are that second-year transfer student. So if you're like your friend and that's a must-have, then maybe transferring you know, to, to that certain four-year university isn't going to be the best fit for you. So what you might want to do is find schools that either have a less lenient residency requirement or find schools that offer summer study abroad programs. Because if you can't have the whole semester, at least, hey, you could have like six weeks abroad. And, and it will still fit into your graduation plan. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Great. Well, yeah, I think that's all we have time for, unfortunately. Thank you so much, Emily. You're welcome. Have a great week. You too. All right. So I just wanted to let you know about what's coming next week, everyone. Um, Beth Heaton will be back and she'll be discussing, she'll be answering listener questions and also discussing Canadian universities with a guest. And finally, I just want to remind you that we have a great list of archives so you can go back and watch shows on standardized testing, applying to colleges in the UK, um, and be sure to rate us on iTunes. It only takes us a, takes a moment of your time, and that way more people hear the word about us. And last, remember, um, we are available every week, Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time. So thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.